Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on the donate button to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. You said button. That's exotic. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good. No, no. I that's think it's exotic. Fine. It's a little something different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just used to YouTubers giving their spiel. They, press, they say donate button all the time. Smash Save that button. donate button, I guess. <laughs> Oh, they do on Twitch and stuff. (laughs) Jinn belief was likely derived from pre-Islamic traditions around Arabia and Persia regarding nature spirits and holdovers from ancient gods and demons in Babylon, Sumer, and Assyria. According to the scholar Robert Liebling, the spirit Pazuzu, featured on The Exorcist, is now counted among the jinn after having terrorized Sumerians as long as 6,000 years ago when he was known as a wind demon. Other ancient demons, the graveyard-lurking Utuku, the Lamia-like Labartu, and the protective Lamasu, have all found their way into the pantheon of jinn. In this form, they've managed to maintain a culture of belief around themselves. The jinn embody, in their fiery supernatural bodies, the survival of pagan concepts through the days of the Prophet into contemporary Islam. Indeed, Muhammad spoke on dealings with the jinn and incorporated them into his worldview. Modern people across the Islamic world continue to worry over the presence and influence of the jinn in their lives. The jinn or fire spirits encompass a variety of supernatural beings, including powerful marids and ifrits, arch-demons, flesh-eating ghouls, and good jinn who have heard the word of the Prophet Muhammad and converted to Islam. Like some of their European counterparts in the supernatural realm, they resemble humans in that they marry, have families, and die, albeit with a much longer lifespan. Unlike humans, they materialize and disappear at will, haunt ruined cities, also toilets and garbage dumps and graveyards and can shapeshift into various animals or impersonate humans. Today on Occult Confessions, the demons whose influence stretches from the sands of Arabia to the beaches of Brunei, the fearsome and mighty jinn. A jinn is a type of ghost that you can catch in that new game, uh, Phasmophobia, too. I, I've... Is it in the toilet? Uh, it could be. I've seen... Oh, God. <laughs> I've seen YouTubers catch it from the toilet, I think. <laughs> It's a game called Phasmophobia where you're a ghost hunter and you like go and you try and figure out what type of different ghosts there are and a djinn is a type of ghost that you can find in the game. Hmm. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It's not really like a ghost in the way we think about a ghost. It's not a dead... There was no dead person before the djinn. The djinn was always in that non-material realm. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that, that hurts the no, game at all. No, uh, it's fine. <laughs> I, I, it's not okay. trying to be realistic, so it's okay. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound like it if you're catching ghosts in toilets. I'm just trying to be modern and let people know that I'm in with, like, all the new things that are going on in the world, in video games. <laughs> Keep things <No>. current, yeah, <laughs> in the world. Thank you for being our world ambassador. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Specifically the gamer world. Yes. <laughs> My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our secret order of alchemical actors. I am joined this day by Savannah Verrett, our sister of the 84th degree, an expert on <laughs> games in which ghosts tied in toilets. That's me. I've done a lot of research. Also, that's it. it's in Legend of Zelda, too, the, ga- the ghost in the toilet. Also, <laughs> Olivia Litterall, our grandmaster of the order. Hello. Yeah, I've never... Um... Never seen a ghost in a toilet. Never heard of it before. <laughs> Don't want to, to be honest with you. How, that sounds like... I feel like that's How some... about a fire spirit? No, that sounds you, worse. Have seen a fire spirit in the toilet? Jesus, no. <laughs> I was going to say, some ghosts in the toilet sounds like almost Casper-like, but like kind of scary, you know? Yeah, the, it, the toilet, something about that just feels invasive, doesn't it? Mm. But the jinn can be, as we're going to find out, the jinn can be a little invasive. They kind of want to peek on you. They're they're a little uh, peeping Tommy. Ew, ew. Yeah. We the members of oh, the secret, secret order, order of, Al- of alchemical, alchemical actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest, honest telling, telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. it. 
You gotta warn us better. before you jump into the <laughs> play. Well, that never kills does. the fun. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's not fun. <laughs> All right, patrons are a little light light this week, team. So uh, we are recording this episode a bit early. Uh, we want to thank uh, Mary G for the pledge bump and also welcome back Kyle R. And as for the rest of you, we would like to encourage you to join the patron team. Uh, there is plenty of room for, for new folks. Uh, Olivia, you, you do have some ideas for some bonus content. Am I, am I right about that? You want to tease the folks a little or...? No, not yet. Probably. <laughs> okay, all right. right. It's too soon. It's too soon. Go look at Bathory, and then you know that'll give you some time because that was like twenty pages. So yes, that's <laughs> that's true. Listen but to... by year's end, yeah, year's end, we will have uh, some new content over there from Olivia. Yes. All right. Uh, so that leaves us some room here in the in the the three plugs. I uh, so we didn't even open we those didn't up. Let's open do those that. up. Yeah. Open them up. Well, now it. You know, plug, plug, plug. It's all right, but see, now we have extra room. We can do, because we can do three whole plugs in here. So, Olivia, we'll start with your favorite plug for some merch. 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 We have merch. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Come come get one of those (laughs) t-shirts. Yeah, we have t-shirts, and, you know, we have some extra little little fun things that, you know, if you buy a t-shirt, I might, I might throw in. You know, oh, some bonuses some treats. slipping in with that T-shirt. You know. Bonus treats. Yeah. So it sounded a little bit ominous when I said it like that, but it, it it's not going to be like, you know, razor blades in the candy or anything. Mm. <laughs> well, so we gave merch a nice big moment. So we'll wrap this up with a couple social media plugs. If you haven't subscribed to us on YouTube yet, speaking of smashing and liking, uh, please do that. And uh, the other thing is, if you haven't joined our Facebook group, uh, that, that is that is th- thriving, I would say. We've got quite a crew of folks over there on the Facebook group trading messages and memes and things. So check us out. All right, let's uh, plug it on up. Plug, plug, plug. In the West, our image of a Ginny or genie, particularly for my fellow children of the 90s, and I don't want to confuse everyone, as I was writing this, I thought sometimes I described myself as a child of the 80s. We really are, we're, off, we're children of two decades, right? <laughs> Most people, our childhood spans a couple of decades. Um, so I was born in the 80s, but um, enjoyed more of my childhood into adolescence in the 90s when I was exposed to a very famous genie voiced by Robin Williams, although some of my post-millennial heretical listeners may ascribe the genie to one Will Smith. We will pretend that that's Rob, never happened. no oh one who is God. listening to this podcast refers to the genie as Will Smith. <laughs> so Will, but Will Smith <laughs> was all little the same genie. <laughs> do not know what podcasts are. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Only babies <laughs> associate Will Smith with the role of the genie. Yes. All right, so this genie, the, uh, we're speaking, of course, of Disney's Aladdin's genie, also known as the genie, is in fact only one of many hundreds of thousands of jinn in the Arabic, Persian, Indo-Pakistani, and Mesopotamian world. Indeed, in the original story from whence the genie came, the genie wasn't even the only genie that Aladdin stumbled across. So let's do a little bit of, of the actual Aladdin here. The story of Aladdin begins uh, when a Chinese boy, taken to getting into trouble, is persuaded by an African magician masquerading as one of his dead dad's friends to go searching for a magic lamp in a cave. There was so much to unpack there. Oh my god. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's just move right along. Hey, I was friends with your dad. You want to go digging around in a cave with me? Cool. This is China. We're going to a Chinese cave in China. The magician lends Aladdin a magic ring to help navigate the cave. When Aladdin upsets the guardians of the cave, the the cave threatens to close on him. Or rather, I suppose the guardians threaten to close the cave on him. But... In the classic moment, you know, the classic scene from the story, he won't hand up the lamp unless the magician helps him out of the cave. But the magician decides to leave him, as well as the lamp, behind in the closing cave, and Aladdin is trapped for two days. I wonder why I haven't tried fooling around with this magic ring at all. I mean, it's magic. 
As it turns out, the ring he's wearing is possessed by a djinn, suggesting both the tradition of Solomon's seal ring and the widespread use of seals and rings for magical purposes in Islamic cultures. And this genie helps Aladdin to escape the cave. Aladdin brings the <laughs> lamp back to his mother, who is alive because he's not an orphan. Disney just I has mean, to make everyone an orphan. There's going to be several of those sarcastic his corrections. Parent, his dad was alive. He was just a thief. And you find oh, him right. in the sequel. <laughs> that's right. The sequel's like kind of low key. Maybe better in my opinion. I actually Is don't that a hot really take? know it that well. Oh, but... boy. Uh, we just rewatched it not that long ago. <laughs> well, that's a reverse. <laughs> Dad is in fact dead, and Mom is alive in the actual Arabian tale. Uh, and his mother raises the gin of the lamp inadvertently while cleaning it. I am a very powerful genie. What do you want? Ah, a very powerful genie. What do we want? A diversified investment portfolio. This djinn is a more powerful Marid than the djinn of the ring, and Aladdin steps in and uses the djinn to make himself rich. He sees the Sultan's beautiful daughter and falls in love with her and sends say, his mother... The princess come in? <laughs> there it is. Right here. Here she is. She's arrived. His mother, uh, who I refer to as... Uh, your mother is your ultimate wingman because that's who you send to woo your potential princess mate. <laughs> that's a choice. <laughs> gotta send mom. You gotta put mom in there. Mm, okay. My son thinks your daughter is way hot. Like, desert hot. And then uh, the sultan's vizier uh, tries to talk uh, the sultan out of out of this marriage. So a vizier is just like your, you know, in, in uh, Arabian culture would be your counselor. Your Jafar, if you will. I was will. about to say Jafar. Oh, okay. <laughs> there we go. They You're speaking him, our language They call now. him the royal vizier in that. So, yeah, they basically oh, use the same go. term, if not. Works out. Disney got something right in there. <laughs> the Chinese sultan's Chinese vizier, because, again, this is set in China, oh. uh, is an advisor. <laughs> wow, that just, like, messed me up yeah. for a second there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, to remind you all, Aladdin is Chinese, and this is all happening in China. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll take a moment, because this is an Arabian night. It, it is an Arabian tale, but for some reason, the, the tellers of the tale said it in China. Um, so this Jafar, the, the advisor Jafar, uh, has a son who is more age-appropriate for Jasmine. So oh. that's who he wants to hook up with, Jasmine. So it's not the Jafar himself, but his son. Not as creepy, got it. Speaking of Princess Jasmine, her actual name in the original tale is the slightly sexier Badrul Badur. <laughs> oh, that wow. is way Disney sexier. Said, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah. You thought Jasmine was hot. Wait till you meet Princess Badrul Badur. I mean, it's more fun, kind of, you know? <laughs> Sultan, you should not marry your daughter to that rich man who's mom stopped by with jewels and other stuff, but rather to my son, who did not give you any stuff, but is still pretty cool. Thanks, Dad. Also, there's multiple villains in this tale. Ooh. This vizier, this Jafar, has nothing to do with the African sorcerer who initially talked Aladdin into going into the cave. Oh. And that African magician is actually going to be back. So those are two two different Whoa. guys. Is there a talking bird that's voiced by Gilbert Godfrey? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> they hadn't. Gil, Gilbert Godfrey hadn't been invented yet. So no, not Dang in this it. story. Aladdin's terrible it's without line. Gilbert Godfrey. <laughs> <laughs> not hanging out in China. <laughs> in, in the eighth century, the Sultan ditches Aladdin and marries his daughter to Jafar's son. But Aladdin is nothing if not persistent. He can still annul the marriage if he can prevent Jafar's son from banging Badrul Bajasmin. Banging? If he can just stop them from like consummating the marriage, yes. then he, he wins? <laughs> yeah, then he can shut this down. Oh my god. This is, this is all real. This is straight out of the original Arabian night. And I know a lot of people don't know this original story, so that's why we're taking the time here. Aladdin asks the genie of the lamp, who isn't so much wisecracking and well-intentioned as frightening and demonic, to upset the marriage bed. Each night, the genie of the lamp transports the bridegroom to an outhouse 
where Jafar's son passes an uncomfortable and presumably foul-smelling night instead of having sexy times. This is not my kink. Let's get this thing annulled. Really? What the f- This is insane. Wait, okay, wait, real fast. So, in this story, like, does Aladdin only get three wishes? Or, like, it- No, it's infinite wishes. So, the because three wishes he just has is... it possess- like, in a possessed thing, he can just do it as many times as he wants? I think, yeah, I don't- I'm not sure exactly where the origin of the limited wish number comes from. It might be Alibaba and the Forty Thieves, but it is not in Aladdin. With the ring and with the lamp, you get as many wishes as the genie is willing to satisfy. Oh. The princess and the vizier's son agree this marriage isn't working out, and they part ways amicably, (laughs) and she marries Aladdin at last. But all is not well, because remember I said the African sorcerer's coming back. He hears about Aladdin's exploits, and he figures he probably got out of the cave. (laughs) And he probably got out of the cave with a magical lamp, because he's managed to produce his own palace, and he's got all these jewels, and he just married the sultan's daughter. So the African merchant, onto this whole scheme, shows back up again, disguised as a merchant. Uh, and he... The merchant is just is dressed as an, a merchant? Is that what you just said? Well, the magician is dressed as a merchant. Oh, got it. Traded one robe for another. Basically, he gets Aladdin's mother to sell the lamp to him. No. Oh, the princess. Gets the princess to sell him the lamp. Oh, no. And the princess falls for it. The genie of the lamp immediately takes the sorcerer as his master, and together they abduct the princess and transport her to Africa. Not cool. Aladdin uses the ring to follow them to Africa and uses the princess to seduce, poison, and murder the African sorcerer. Jeez. Radical. Yeah, Jasmine is much more hardcore in the original story. Bad rule by Jasmine. But we're not done yet. The African sorcerer has a brother, villain number three. <laughs> oh my gosh. But what about my twin brother? <laughs> yes, who shows up disguised as a holy woman and gets the princess to ask Aladdin to request a rock's egg from the genie of the lamp. Just do it. Just ask them. I'm a holy woman. You can trust me. Now, a rock is a magical bird called in this legend the mother of the jinn, and the genie tells Aladdin, I should wreck you for asking me that. That bird is my mother. But it's not your fault. It's that holy woman who put you up to it. So Aladdin murders the holy woman who is really the African sorcerer's brother in disguise. End of story. What? That's how it ends? Yeah, yeah it's, 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 it's pretty rough. That's really weird. Three villains, an outhouse, interrupted conjugal well, times know, between married mountain? partners. They had like so many ups and downs. It feels like they didn't have a true ending. Like this is nuts. <laughs> this, <laughs> this is original fairy tale land. <laughs> so Aladdin was not part of the original Thousand and One Nights, but despite its Chinese setting, which was likely an effort to render the story more exotic, it clearly reflects important features of Arabic folklore. The jinn lore in this story portrays them as varied in power. The lamp is more powerful than the ring, but the ring is still powerful enough to be dangerous. They can be bound to objects, that is to say the jinn, but if they're insulted, they can also rebel against their so-called masters. With the rock's egg, the jinn basically says, I could incinerate you for requesting my mother's eggs, but I'm not going to. I'm going to help you kill this other guy. Mm. Wary of jinn, Muslim believers have utilized a host of remedies against them. They've spoken prayers before undressing in case a randy jinn might be spying on them, a real concern. They told snakes to go away before killing them for fear that the snakes are actually jinn in disguise and you would, you know, annoy the jinn if you ended up, you know, murdering them in snake form. And they have left babies in cemeteries for a quarter of an hour in case the jinn might have switched the child for one of their own kind. Surefire way to tell. Wait, okay. why? That's a lot. It's just what you do. There's other things you can do, Savannah, that we'll get to later in the episode okay. that are worse. I was so just the wondering, like, do they not, not so like bad. cemeteries or something? Yeah, eventually it'll just like out the gene, the genie, oh. the genie somehow. Yeah. So despite the presence of supernatural spirits, Aladdin is not actually a pagan tale. It's a Muslim story. 
the name Aladin actually means servant of Allah. So you can see in oh. in Aladdin, the word Allah is sort of portmanteaued inside of there. And part of what Aladdin learns through his various experiences, at least in theory, is to be an obedient servant of God. Which raises the question, how did the jinn survive the transition from a polytheistic culture to a monotheistic culture? To begin, Islam is one of the three major religions of the one God, sharing in much of what Jews and Christians believe, with Muhammad functioning as what's called the seal of the prophets or final revelation. I'm taking a little time here because we've never talked about Islam at length. This is the first episode we've devoted to Islam, so give Islam a minute here. Certainly, there are significant differences between each tradition, Judaism, Christianity, and and Islam, but they also share common roots, namely the Torah, the Psalms, and even the Gospels, the Torah commonly called by Christians the Old Testament. The Judeo-Christian tradition makes considerable room for demons. Devils surfaced most famously in Genesis, but also Job and the Gospels. Jesus is always driving them out of pigs and stuff. Non-canonical books like Tobit, Solomon, and Enoch extend their lore by labeling them fallen angels or the children of angels and men. One Talmudic tradition holds that Adam and Eve were separated for 130 years following their expulsion from Eden and spent that time sexing and being sexed by spirits of the opposite sex. Sex. Sexity sex sex sex. The children produced through these. Sorry. (laughs) You just literally like that word. There's a lot of, yeah, I had to say sex a lot in that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) The children, and we actually, we'd mentioned this on our um, sex demons episode. Anyway, the children produced through these uh, unions were called the matzikin, which was the Hebrew name for fairies or devils. So when Adam and Eve had sex with spirits, they produced the matzikin. Got me? Okay. Early Christians tended to literally demonize all of these supernatural beings, but the Muslims called them jinn after a tradition many thousands of years old and believed they could be either good or evil. Jinn, like humans, have free will and are able to choose, specifically, whether or not to accept the Prophet Muhammad's message. One of the most significant treatises on the jinn was composed by Ahmad ibn Abdul Halim ibn Taymiyyah in the town of Haran in 1263. Sorry, I was kind of proud of myself as I was finishing that, whether it's correct or not. An Orthodox Islamic legal scholar, he spent much of his life arguing against those seeking to innovate on traditional Muslim belief. He fought for orthodoxy, both in his legal rulings or fatwas and on the battlefield, and was imprisoned many times by authorities who disagreed with his fatwas, which were always based on traditional Islamic law. He died in a Damascus prison in 1328, where he'd been placed for his opinion against the practice of visiting saints' graves. His enemies had distorted the ruling to say that he forbade visiting the Prophet Muhammad's grave, landing him behind bars. The Orthodox Ibn Taymiyyah argued for the jinn as a fundamental element of Islamic culture, and I'm going to quote him here. No one in any of the Muslim sects denies the existence of the jinn or that Allah, the exalted, almighty, also sent Muhammad to them. As for Jews and Christians, they recognize that jinn exist in much the same way that Muslims do, though there may be among them some individuals who deny the existence of the jinn. The reason for the widespread belief in the existence of the jinn is the continual and consistent mention of their existence in the messages of the prophets. You got me? So Tay, a super conservative guy, is saying that jinn are what we are canon, what we might say oh, you know, no. in, in nerd speak, <laughs> they are canon. Uh, but for real, they are part of the Muslim system. The Quran refers to jinn as having been created from smokeless fire, in contrast to the angels who were com- created from light. God says that he created smokeless fire. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> like... it, yeah. I think they are pretty cool. Hopefully by the end of the episode, most people will think they're pretty cool. God says that he created both jinn and humans to worship him. Surah Jinn describes how Muhammad converted a group of jinn by revealing his prophecy to them. And a mosque in Mecca is dedicated to the early jinn converts, who surface in various stories, intervening on behalf of Muslim humans when they run afoul of other jinn. So when you run against an evil jinn, you just got to get a good jinn to help you out of the jam. 
So where are the jinn? They exist in a parallel dimension to humankind, but they can surface in our dimension as well. Time in their dimension moves differently such that the average lifespan for a jinn is more than 10 times that of a human. In a weird side note, Muhammad spoke with a jinn missionary and learned that bones were the food of the jinn and that animal droppings were the food of their animals. <laughs> okay, that sounds useful. Yeah, well, weird, right? So Muhammad actually told his people <laughs> not to wipe their butts with bones. What? Which apparently was something that they were inclined to do or to wipe their butts with other animals' droppings. They had to be told that? Apparently. And not to, not to wipe it with other animal droppings? Did you? Apparently they were doing this. What? Before Muhammad received his prophecy, the jinn were said to be able to eavesdrop on the happenings in heaven. But after Muhammad spoke the words of the Quran, their listening privileges were revoked. What? So they used to spy on God. Well, why was it revoked after that? I guess because it's not cool to spy on God, so they're like, okay, we shouldn't do it anymore now that we believe. Somehow, it was like Muhammad, there was this sort of like a magical quality to him speaking the words of the Quran that just closed the door. Okay. This is weird. I I just, this is, I had no idea that genie, jinn, like, or genies come from this, like, kind of thing. I don't know. Yeah. Everything you've ever heard about a genie is based on this stuff. Their ancestral home was the Quaff Mountains. That's Q-A-F Mountains at the edge of the world. Also home to the phoenix, the bird that rises from its own ashes. Mm-hmm. We're the aware. Re- <laughs> We've heard oh, of her. Heard of her? Yeah. The region, which is called Jinistan, like, you know, Kazakhstan or Afghanistan, but, you know, for the jinn, Jinistan, could only be reached by traveling four months in total darkness. Wow. What? That's cool. Muhammad is said to have visited Jinnistan on his famous night journey in which he flew to Jerusalem and Mecca and also spoke with the earlier prophets in heaven. In the jinn cities of Jabulka and Jabulsa, he converted the populations there. There's also a story of a group of jinn hearing the prophets' words and then bringing them back to the jinn community to share what they'd heard. This moment of collective revelation separated the believer jinn from the unbeliever jinn, um, and it was also a moment that separated human believers and unbelievers. Opposite the righteous jinn are the unbeliever jinn, who are led by Iblis, I-B-L-I-S, the Muslim equivalent of Satan. Oh, I've never, what is it? Oh, you're going to say it again. Iblis, okay. yeah, Iblis. Iblis. Iblis was a very intelligent jinn who God decided to elevate to the status of angel. In this version of events, and I've got to tell you, as with any mythology, there are several versions of the Iblis origin story, but the jinn were created in this version of events tens of thousands of years before humans. And after 25,000 years, they started to get a little rebellious. So God sent the angels down to punish and scatter them. The scattering didn't work out so well, though, because they all moved in together on an island in the Southern Ocean. Iblis was captured and brought to heaven where he was made an angel because God, you know, thought he was super smart. Then Iblis returned to Earth, assumed the name Azazel, and took the lead of the island of the jinn. Azazel refused to kneel before Adam when humans were created, uh, and because the jinn, he said, were made of fire, whereas Adam and Eve were made of clay, and, you know, in Azazel's opinion, fire was cooler. (laughs) He's not wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Cooler than clay. So Iblis started looking around for an animal to sneak him into the Garden of Eden, and guess who volunteered? A snake? Snake. Yep, it was the serpent. And the serpent let him ride between her teeth and speak through her mouth. What? It the okay. She's a very giving snake. In the Islamic version, you'll both like this. Adam and Eve together eat from the tree of eternity without either assuming the blame. Hell yeah, that's right. And God (laughs) forgives them when they repent. Oh well, see if they had just teamed up. (laughs) <laughs> they wouldn't have, have had this fine. whole yeah we wouldn't have this whole christian situation 
For his part, Iblis had sex with the serpent, and they produced a bunch of demon offspring. Oh. <laughs> okay, that just happened on the side, or yeah, while Adam and Eve were payment? messing around <laughs> with the oh. tree and repenting and all that. Damn, s- Satan was in the back banging the serpent. <laughs> okay, throw it in between her teeth and. Okay, cool. Whatever. Yeah, it, it was a kinky relationship. There's a lot of sex in these old religion like things. It's really Well, odd. yeah, the, in the mythology. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. That's what I meant. I couldn't think of a word. So Iblis's more famous sex partner, regarded as the mother of the jinn, is Lilith. <gasps> oh, there she is. She's she is here. also known in the Arabic and Persian stories as Karina. That's Q-A-R-I-N-A-H, Olivia, for for later. Karina also refers to an individual's demonic spirit double who follows them from birth, attempting to turn them toward evil. As is common in Lilith lore, Karina causes miscarriages in women, impotence in men, and stalks and kills children. Her hatred of children, in theory, derives from her failure to serve as a mother to humanity by Adam since she had to be replaced with Eve. Next up is Solomon, famous for the part he played in demonological lore by harnessing the power of a variety of demons to help build the first temple using a special ring. Not unlike Aladdin's ring. In the Arabic interpretation of this legend, Allah has given Solomon dominion over the winds and the evil jinn. Solomon's ring allows him to command a crew of 70 different jinn who perform a variety of projects for him around Jerusalem, including the building of the first temple. Among these demons is Asmodeus, called Ashmadai, and also Lilith, called Obitsuth. Sol- Sol- Go ahead. Oh, question. But do they still have free will? Yes. In an so, Islamic world, the jinn always have free will. So they're cool with doing, you know, whatever for him? Because he's got that magic ring. When you have magic stuff in this world, you can subjugate the jinn. Magical seals are created using ancient pagan inscriptions, or the 99 names of Allah. Similarly, Kabbalistic lore, on the Jewish side of things, holds that the mystical and secret name of God can be used to achieve magical ends. So there's a a connection there. There are also satanic methods to control the jinn, as Ibn Taymiyyah outlines. He says, Much of these amulets have Quranic verses written in impurities like blood, etc., or some Quranic words written backwards, or other things which please the devil, which may be written or spoken over them. What that which pleases the devil is written or spoken by men, he may help them attain some of their desires, like removing large quantities of water from some place, or carrying them in the air to other places, or bringing them wealth stolen from the treacherous and those who do not mention Allah's name on their wealth, etc. So you can use these satanic practices literally, you know, like inversions. The same thing as in a Christian universe. A satanic practice is an inversion of a, you know, church practice where you write Quranic verses in reverse. You see what I mean? And then you can use that to manipulate the jinn uh, as devils, and then they do your work. They move water for you and stuff. I mean, you're living in a desert, so that's that's probably pretty useful. So that it's not really free will. If they can, well, if they can, get, if you get charmed, then too bad. But jinn technically can choose. The jinn can protect themselves and sort of maintain free will if they acknowledge the word of the Prophet Muhammad and acknowledge that God is the one God. Oh, okay. Yeah. I see. So you can subject yourself to God or you're, you can remain with the evil jinn and then you can be controlled by all these different magical means. Huh. In addition to magical rings, seals, and amulets, the lore suggests wolves, Ooh. wolves as a remedy against the jinn. That's fun. So if you can't get your hands on a magical ring or a seal or an amulet... You gotta go grab a wolf. <laughs> okay, I that's want so nothing easy. more. My dog kind of looks like a wolf. So yeah, I think it might there. work. Oh yeah. So wolves uh, are a remedy uh, that I'll grant you is a bit difficult to wield, but nevertheless, this is what happens. Jinn are terrified of wolves. Jinn can shapeshift into all sorts of creatures. Dogs, cats, camels, goats, sheep, cows, horses, mules, donkeys, lions, jackals, birds, toads, beetles, scorpions, and snakes. But they will never shapeshift into a wolf. 
legend holds that a djinn is incapable of escaping by sinking into the earth when a wolf is present. And so the wolf tears the djinn apart. Why, why is that? Where did this... The wolf has magical power to keeps the genie on earth and then the wolf destroys them. I guess it's this notion that everything sort of has to have a natural enemy. Love that. Okay. In Iraq, a wolf's teeth are used to ward off illness and other evils. One story tells of a company of female jinn who were confronted by wolves and unable to sink away transformed themselves into talismanic stones, all of which retained the female jinn's respective power. So you get talismans out of that. You get your amulets and all that witchy stuff. The various evils that jinn inflict on humans include possessing people, causing illness, and haunting certain places, especially places on the margins of society, like, as we said, toilets and graveyards. Ibn Taymiyyah gives the various reasons jinn can get annoyed with us humans. He says, Possession is most often a result of jinn's being angry, because some wrong has been done to them, and thus it is to them a punishment for those who wronged them. For example, when humans accidentally harm or hurt them by urinating on them, by pouring hot water on them, or by killing some of them, the jinn think that they have been intentionally harmed. Though humans may not realize what they have done, the jinns are by very nature ignorant. They are harsh and volatile in their behavior, so they may vengefully punish humans much more than they actually deserve. Demonic possession sometimes also occurs as a result of horseplay, jest, or plain evil on the part of the jinn. So you huh. get what's going on there. Basically, we can't see them. Yeah. You know, they're in that non-material universe. So, you know, we're just, you know, going out for a pee or whatever, and we accidentally pee on a jinn. <laughs> and that really rubs them the wrong way. I mean, I can't say I blame them. You know, like, because they can see us and we can't see them. It's kind of like, come on, guys, be considerate here. We live in the same place. But I... <laughs> yeah, you... normal ghosts just, like, wish that they could, like, get mad at that yeah, kind of thing. not much they can do about it, right? But if you're a djinn, you have recourse. So is it... So the djinn are kind of like... So they were around before humans and, like, God got bored with these supernatural-esque beings and then made humans? They got a little rebellious, yeah, so he figured That's we would be more obedient. Oh. So let's talk about some of the things they can do to you. Like fairies and elves, they are known to steal children, often as a replacement for a djinn child that is killed intentionally or accidentally by a human, I guess when you toss hot water on them or something. A modern remedy has the parent setting her child in a graveyard for 20 minutes, but I told you, Savannah, earlier we would get to some older solutions, which involve placing the infant in an unlit oven or a tomb in which no dead person has been buried for over a year. Whoa. For how long? For uh, Oh, well, for 20 minutes. Oh, okay. Oh, still the same amount of time. So they can't but get these, in ovens? <laughs> well, the problem is uh, these could inadvertently result in the child suffocating. Yeah. No, but like the gin can't get inside an can't get inside an oven. I think that if you were to put a gin child inside the oven, it would be like I'm a gin, and you would know. Oh, be like, oh, I don't want to sit here for twenty minutes. <laughs> Let me go. <laughs> yeah, like minute nineteen is too much for that baby gin. <laughs> okay, that's weird. It's probably too much for a baby human though, so it should not. It should never put your child in a tight enclosed space. Do people actually? Do this, like leave their babies in the cemetery for 20 minutes and stuff? I think that this is not uncommon. Um, I I mean, we got to bear in mind this is like more, you know, the mythological folks who are closer to the pagan traditions would do something like this. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to say that it's like throughout Saudi yeah, Arabia yeah, yeah. there are people. But there, there, I'm sure there are still some people who observe this tradition. Well, how far away do the parents have to really be? Like, yeah, I, I don't think you need to like, like you know, they can go look- around the block. It's just 20 minutes. They can watch from afar, right? And in the graveyard outdoors, it's pretty safe. But it's also possible for an adult to be whisked away by the djinn to be put on trial, often for murdering a djinn. What tends to happen is a djinn transforms him or herself into a snake, and then a human comes across this snake and kills it, thinking it's just a snake, when in fact, it's a djinn. And then some djinn show up, and the next thing you know, you're on trial. You're in djinn Judy's court. (laughs) That's what? crazy. Yeah, you get whisked away to this court. That's room, like what is the it part of like you I know need the to part know. in Halloween Town where like what which one is it where like Marnie has to go to her bedroom and it's like the whole council is there waiting for her. I no? never watched Halloween Town. 
What? Yeah, I know. <laughs> what? I've never watched it. I'm sorry for whoever has to edit that, but oh my god. I am appalled. <laughs> I am outraged. I've never seen Hocus Pocus either, so. <laughs> <gasps> well, I'm not as, like, okay, hell-bent about know. that. People are going nuts about that movie online. Oh, people are dickhard, yeah. yeah. Well, it's a good thing this episode's publishing after Halloween, so folks will be a little less offended, Savannah, by these <laughs> <laughs> omissions in your upbringing. Mm. Sha-Walulila, Sha oh, help me out here, Sha-Walula, I cannot wa help you, Waliula Delavi, okay, this guy, mm -hmm. he's an 18th century Sunni, Del so D-E-H-L-A-V-I, Delavi, 18th century Sunni whose strict orthodox interpretation of Islam inspired the founder of the Wahhabi Sunnis, Mohabban Ibn Abdul Wahhab, whose ideas were in turn adopted by the Afghani Taliban. See what I did there? Wow. Brings us right up to the present day, this guy. This guy was put on trial by the jinn. So the guy who inspired the guy who inspired the Afghani Taliban was put on trial by genies. Like, there, did they, that's a lot. Was he guilty? What happens if so you're guilty? He, do they kill you? Uh, yeah. All kinds of stuff could happen to you. It gets, it gets ugly. He had killed a snake who was actually a jinn. One of the original jinn companions of the prophet intervened, saying that Muhammad had decreed that when someone killed a jinn in animal form, they could not be prosecuted, and Dalavi was set free. Otherwise, yes, I think it, it, they, they would punish you severely. Well, I'm glad that they made that a rule because apparently snakes are getting killed all the time. Like, you think they'd pick a different animal that wasn't <laughs> slaughtered so readily over there. I don't know. Some uh, Muslims or, or believers uh, view the trial as something that just happens in your head. So it's not like you're physically whisked away, but you're mentally whisked away. So for throwing hot substances around, which can accidentally hit jinn, the thrower can find themselves trapped in this mental trial until the jinn decide to forgive them. During the course of this trial, the victim appears as if they've lost their sanity to the outside world. So you're sort of going around insane, literally insane, without sanity, while this trial is bopping around in your brain. Okay, that's actually really scary. I don't like that at all. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's pretty terrifying, yeah. Um, and this is where the expression of becoming gin mad comes from. And that's a, a regular feature of the Thousand and One Nights and a standard part of the lore, the notion of being gin mad. Gin are thought to cause madness, often through possession. Uh, so much so that in 2002, the Somali immigrant Abu Qasim Jelani uh, was shot to death by police in America for walking down a Minneapolis street with a machete and crowbar. This is not because Americans buy into this folklore, believe or understand this folklore. It has other wider societal implications, right? Yeah. That a Muslim man is shot by police on the street. However, how this ties back into the jinn is that local imams had been treating him by reading from the Quran, a common remedy for jinn possession, and lamented that the police had even been called to help this man instead of them. So the imams wanted to be the ones to come and help him because... They wouldn't have shot him. Yeah. They would have continued to read the Quran and, and try to coax him back from this state of jinn madness. So this was 2002 when imams in America uh, were attempting this cure. Whoa. On the more pleasant side of being whisked away is the jinn's inclination to have sex with or even marry humans. I wanted to say this earlier, Savannah, when you brought up marry. sex. When I brought yeah, up sex, are you... <laughs> well, okay, I've been bringing it up a lot, but you mentioned that it's been coming up a lot. Oh, yeah, okay, you're right. So the Prophet Muhammad uh, actually was a big fan of the female orgasm. Oh, sweet. And taught his followers, I mean, in his, in the traditions of Muhammad, it's not in the Quran, I don't think, but in the traditions of Muhammad, he taught that you should pleasure a woman and, and he was all about that foreplay and, and that sort of stuff, making sure your, your women were, were pleased. All right. Just a side note. <laughs> That's good to know. Yeah, how about that? So Muslim scholars through the ages have debated whether or not it's legal to marry a jinn. Oh. The argue, yeah, this is <laughs> not even ethical. Some, is it legal? <laughs> is it legal? We're going to get some legal arguments here. Got it. Well, I think for a lot of these Muslim scholars, that those two sort of overlap. Ethical and legal are the same thing. If it's legal oh, okay. according to the religion, then it's ethical. Oh, yeah, for gotcha. you. I see. So the argument against marriage 
Septuagint held that any racial difference precluded a union. The case in favor of jinn marriage cites historical precedent, instances in which early Muslims were said to have married jinn and even produced children. The folklore is full of stories of female jinn being drawn to male human partners and male jinn being drawn to female human partners. In the 14th century, the Moroccan magician Mahaban ibn al-Haji al-Tilimsani gave like you kind of were crushing that one. Thank you. It's up till the end there. It's always the last one, the, the final name that gets me. Muhammad uh, ibn al-Haji gave instructions for a spell that would allow the magician to have sex with the daughter of the white king of the jinn. You had to do 12 days of fasting and then ignore any dragons that you happen to see. <laughs> what? <laughs> what are you do the, are the dragons attracted to you yeah, because like... you're un- undergoing a process? I think possibly. I think maybe the oh White King is, is sending the dragons to try to like keep you from banging his daughter. Like, fight you? And all you have to do is ignore them. Like, what do they want? Like, are the dragons like, hey, look they just at me, heckle looky, you. Looky. Like, yes, they, they wave their hands in front of your face <laughs> and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> like they're picking up your arm and making you hit yourself. Like, why are you hitting yourself? Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they're like they're like a bully in the eighth grade. <laughs> but you just have to ignore them and you and carry on. Okay. Wow. Finally, the white king, the daughter of the white king of the jinn, will come to you. Uh, but you should not agree to marry her, or you'll be impotent with human women ever afterward. Huh. Oh, so you just here's a, have sex yeah, with her just, and then <laughs> yeah, make no agreements. Don't promise her anything. As an interesting side note, Muslim women are required to bathe after sex with human men and before prayer because of the bodily fluids involved. But they are not required to bathe after sex with jinn on the presumption that jinn produce no physical semen. Okay. As with much jinn lore and folklore in this ge- in in general, this contradicts the notion that human women produce children with male jinn, which goes back to I, I'm sort of like bringing this around to our sex demon episode from a, a, about a month ago. Uh, but again, this all sort of depends on your source. So some sources argue that this is true. So you're telling me that people are out there fasting for twelve days just to have sex with someone? <laughs> I guess it's like a... It's the daughter of the white king of the jinn, yeah. not just Anna. someone. That is a night to remember. I'm just God. thinking, I like food too much to not eat for 12 days, but I don't know. Well, you know? it's Muslim fasting, so I think that you might be able to eat at night. Oh, okay. Never mind. Yeah. That's I, worth it. Don't quote me on that. that's basically what I do anyway. <laughs> Savannah's back in. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> Well, when we attempt this ritual, Savannah, we will eat at night, and we'll see if it works. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm just going to close quick with one more modern story. In 2000, a Pakistani family blamed the jinn for their 17-year-old daughter's disappearance, claiming that she had been abducted. So oh. cases of jinn abduction, like the 2002 Somali man in America, now in 2000, this Pakistani case, jinn belief, you know, as Olivia was asking about, is absolutely still with us in modern 21st century culture. Cases of humans possessed by jinn range across continents from Saudi Arabia to Minnesota, with some Muslim believers attributing mental illness to the jinn and insisting on both a spiritual and mental health treatment, Hmm. which is something I can absolutely get on board with. I I don't think you should have one without the other. Mm -hmm. I I think that they go hand in hand personally. It's my personal take on that. Um, And that's that's what I have to say about the jinn. We had some fun there. (laughs) Gonna get out of dodge. That's enough gin for one day. Yeah. I now I really want to know like where the Western version of genies come from with like all the rules. I understand like the trickster part because they're always like, oh, genies never give you what you actually wish for. But like, yeah, the other rules are interesting too. Well, all those Aladdin rules are are a little. I think those are just made up. Like I can't bring back the dead and all that. They can totally do a lot of that stuff. Well, that's just covering Uh, up plot holes. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, I I want my dead mom back. But I'm thinking like, because there's like a thing with genies where it's like, oh, you wish for something, and it's like, oh, I wish I had some all the money in the world. But then like all the money comes at once and like suffocates you and you die. Like you know what I mean? Like it has like weird twists like that. It's that trickster component. And we also see this uh, out, Olivia. You're, I'm sure you've come across this, that the devil does this a lot when you 
you know, make a deal with the devil. Oh. The deal with the devil is always going to go wrong in, in some unexpected way. Okay. And and that's, I think, because the genie, the jinn, the evil jinn are associated so much with Satan in the Islamic world. Mm. There are, of course, good jinn. I mean, I, I, I want to point that out. Just like when we did the sex demon episode, there are good sex demons. It's possible for a sex demon, in you know, according to Ludovico, uh, Sinistrari to, to to be converted and and to go to you know spirit heaven, but um, for the jinn that's also the case that they can be converted to Islam and and lead a good life. But those evil jinn, I, I think that that's just riffing on that tradition. I really don't. The three wishes. I'm gonna guess that that is in one of the Arabian Nights. I don't know which one in particular, so don't quote me. Oh, and, okay. and if any listeners know, by all means, let us know. I'm, that my guess is. That it's definitely not in the story of Aladdin, but that it's in some one of the Arabian Nights, and and it it's it's definitely helpful for our Western minds yeah. because if the lamp is just full of a powerful genie that will do whatever you want at all times, and there's no rules, like what the heck? Well, like it, the it story's over. It also a more interesting conflict. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, the story just ends right there. It's it's like a it's like Superman, right? We don't. It's tough to have stories with Superman. You always stick Superman, and he's just the best. They had to get Kryptonite in there, otherwise Superman it just destroys everything all the time and always <laughs> wins. So that that I think the three wishes are kind of way of introducing Kryptonite into the story. But you know, for a Muslim audience, for Aladdin, they're aware that the jinn, while they are you know bound to these objects and bound by certain kinds of magic, they are also unpredictable, and and that genie could destroy Aladdin, right? So there are always limits, and it's dangerous to play with the jinn. So oh, okay. that you know, if I was Aladdin, right? if, if I if I was a Muslim. Uh, this is the intentional fallacy. Let me not do this. If you want to view this in through that lens, Aladdin, every time he picks up that lamp, he's taking a risk. Gotcha. So you're not going to just go hog wild and Superman yourself with that lamp. You're going to be restrained in your use of it because you never know. The gin is so powerful and so dangerous that you don't want to overuse it. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So what happened... Like- so did you really say what happens like if you marry a jinn like oh yeah like you just you can yeah you can do it do you do you stay just chilling with the normal people and then like can you see it just visit you or like what it seems like that you could go back and forth the jinn have the power to do that yo so okay that's crazy would your kids be like just cool people like demigods or like, <laughs> would they be like you know that's just debatable normal we, we don't even know if you have kids so that's a that's a debatable oh, right. issue okay we don't know if that's possible i i'm getting i am asking too many questions well yeah because the jinn may not be able to produce semen so hmm. and i guess if a man produces semen I, 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 your probably your best bet is with a human male and a female jinn and then it probably would just well, be a jinn and live in the jinn world yeah Although the halfsies, that's an interesting, like, I feel like that's the beginning of a neat little novel. Yeah. Or comic book. <laughs> Get Rick Riordan on it. Yeah, the half gin. Huh. All right, let's, uh, let's, let's check in with Shannon versus the evil evilness, the next installment in our uh, five-part series, exclusive to our evil spirit series. Let's see what Shannon's up to today. Welcome to the Alchemical Actors Intermission Theater. Featuring the latest installment in the continuing saga of Shannon versus the evil, evilness. Today we meet Shannon at the Ghost Lodge of the Ancient Society of Exorcists and Paranormal Purgers and etc. Brothers and sisters and non-binary compatriots of the Ancient Society of Exorcists and Paranormal Purgers and etc. I tell you, I have been stalked. Stalked, I tell you, by a great evil, an evil evil. It has pursued me, or rather pursued a person who for some reason was sleeping near me and left before I did. It has cursed a whole castle full of Scottish nobility to eat cold fish. And now, gaze upon the nefarious message the fiend has left in my palm, written in the devil's favorite medium, ketchup. kind of smudged. I can't quite make it out. Blurg? Blurg. But what is... what? What is Blurg? Blurg. I, um... Should we know what that is? 
Blurg. Our sources today included Robert Liebling's Legends of the Fire Spirits, colon, Jinn and Genies from Arabia to Zanzibar, Ibn Taymiyyah's Essay on the Jinn, uh, and I also encourage our listeners to check out QuranExplorer.com. Okay, so we got a note from Alicia. Alicia, Alicia. B. Uh, and, and I'm going to toss this over to you, Olivia. I'm going to put you on the spot, see what you think about this. Alicia thought uh, that... She's a new listener, just found the podcast. She's been devouring us while at work. <laughs> sounds, Yum. Do we taste <laughs> sounds good? delicious. I hope you taste good, yeah. <laughs> okay, she says, one of the commandments of memory serves uh, on the Georgia Guidestones, which we mentioned many, many episodes again, ago, maybe even, even in our first season or early in our second season. One of the commandments uh, regards population density. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, she says, wasn't there a part of the Gnostic belief system that talks about a finite number of souls? Oh, I can speak to this, too. Mm. Uh, so yeah. the first commandment on the Georgia Guidestones is, um, or the first note is, maintain humanity under 500 uh, million in perpetual balance with nature. Is that 500 million? 500 billion? 500 million. Boy, we've blown away. I was about that. to say, I think we've we're long gone. It reminds me of the shrooms too, when you know, the whole McKenna talking to the shrooms and they're like the shrooms advice to him when he was like, How can like we save humanity? Like what is the key? And the biggest thing they said was stop reproducing. <laughs> they were like, just stop. Uh... I'm pretty confident the Corpus Hermeticon makes reference to there being a certain amount of soul in the world. I think you're right, but to be totally honest, I don't remember. But that that certain amount of soul, I think, can be divided up almost infinitely. We all have fractions of a soul. So originally there was the one soul, and we all have fractions of that soul that have been split apart into many different pieces. Um. So yeah, there there is definitely an occulty connection with uh, that maintenance of population. It's hard to tell whether this is just uh, uh, I don't know. I, I don't want to use the word eugenic, but you know this sort of like it is a bit eugenic that it's just a maintenance of a small population for scientific purposes, or or you know for with a scientific rationale, or if there is in fact an occult rationale. Um, I think there are occulty things underneath of this rule passion faith tradition and all things with tempered reason unite humanity with a living new language i mean i had mentioned i think originally that this all sounded like theosophy at least in part blavatsky's vision um so be not a cancer on the earth is the last one leave room for nature leave room for nature it says it twice so it's it's just good advice on the georgia guidestones yeah it just sounds like good ways to live kind of yeah uh but i i think alicia b is onto something as well that there are occulty undertones hermetic undertones at least if not gnostic undertones but possibly to to this idea uh, that we would have more soul in us with a smaller population if it's being divided up the more people are produced that there's a finite amount of soul, right? You remember this? Yeah. Well, I guess yeah. to the ideas that we all have, we all share that same spark of like light, I guess they call it. But it's, yes, you know, yeah. that the piece of not God, but I'm just going to summarize it, I guess, is having uh, we all have like a piece of that, like God spark in us. So I don't know what that attributes to that question or conversation, but. You know? No, I think that's, yeah. And and the Corpus Hermeticum really, her, Hermetic philosophy and Gnostic philosophy have, I think, some overlap. I don't know a lot of, about Gnosticism. Olivia knows more than I do about that subject. But uh, I do, uh, when we originally had done the Corpus Hermeticum, I think we saw a lot of overlap there. I'm constantly telling you, I feel like, every episode, that <laughs> something that Gnostic. you say sounds like something I read. And, and, not today. You know? not, not not with the djinn. They're, they're off in their own world. Yeah, no, that was a lot of, just reminded me of, Christianity, but not as bad. Does that yeah, sound our, bad? our Christian sex <laughs> demons. Sound bad. There are a lot of tie-ins between the jinn and the Christian sex demons, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it, Olivia. Bring us on home. 
I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. We want to thank our voices today. We had Lucy Bond, Andrew Mims, Luke Kinneman, Brandon Walls, and Sean Priest. Some regular folks there you are most accustomed to hearing. They did an excellent job with the story of Aladdin. Uh, I am joined at the mic by Savannah Verrett, sister of the 84th. Goodbye. Please stop murdering snakes so you don't go to gin trial. Yeah, don't don't go to those gin trials. That's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Olivia Litterall, Grand Master of the Order. Just think of how much room in the prison system we would have if all of the people, all of the gins, just, you know. Put us in their gin jail if we were all in mental prison? <laughs> no, no, I mean, if they all got out, like if we stopped oh. fighting them, we stopped sn- stepping on snakes. I'm trying right. to free them. Free the Rob? gin. Rob? <laughs> free us. Free us the- from the gin. <laughs> it's fine. The bit didn't work. <laughs> Just start it again. Cut it. Start it again. No, we're leaving. We're out. We're done. Cut that out. No. We're leaving. Cut it out. Cut it out. My name is Rob C. Thompson. (laughs) I am the supreme hierophant of your secret order of alch. I'm definitely not cutting a minute of this. Of the secret order of alchemical actors. Uh, Join us next time uh, where we explore uh, yet another culture uh, where we we go into the stories of the Wendigo from the native Canada. Canada's first uh, nations people. Uh, so we look forward to uh, telling that story next time here on Occult Confessions. Bye. Bye.